Hello and welcome to the D2C Podcast. I'm Eric Dick. Today we are taking a rip around the D2C dance floor with Benjamin Smith, CEO and founder of Disco, Simplified Skincare for Men. This podcast has all of Benjamin's biggest tactics and tips for growth, including how to optimize and build a winning landing page and why every brand needs to be using one today. You'll learn how to find your hero product and offer and then how to make sure you're supporting it with the right ad assets. And you'll learn why raising prices might just be the easiest way to improve your bottom line. Duh, why didn't I think of that? Hope you enjoy this one. On with the show. If you have, say, five SKUs and they're $10 each, you can pretty easily raise the price to $12 and see the direct impact. Launch that on Wednesday at 12 p.m. And if your conversion rate is normally 3% and your conversion rate comes down to 1%, you know almost certainly that that price is too high. This is not that complicated of a CRO test. We basically isolated that test and just raised many of our SKUs prices, 2 to $4 each, and didn't see any impact negatively in conversion. And so we did it again from there. And then we started to experience some downturns or signals in conversion rate going down. Generally speaking, like I wouldn't raise a $10 product to $20, but you could definitely test creeping those up over time. If it doesn't impact your CAC so much, but your gross margin increases more, that in my opinion is a worthwhile change. Did you know that the subscription market is predicted to grow to over $2.6 trillion by 2028? As a fast-growing area in commerce, subscriptions hold tremendous opportunities to build a community of customers who share your values. Recharge is the leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale subscription offerings. Recharge powers the growth for over 15,000 subscription merchants and their communities, turning one-time transactions into long-term customer relationships. Whether you're a direct-to-consumer business or an omni-channel brand, merchants who use Recharge are able to experience predictable revenue, increased customer loyalty, and higher average order values. So turn transactions into relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Get started today with the subscriptions payment solution trusted by over 50 million consumers worldwide by heading over to rechargepayments.com forward slash DTC. Benjamin, welcome to the D2C podcast. We always like to start with the why when we're interviewing founders. So could you tell us why you built Disco? Yeah, so when I was starting Disco back in the beginning of 2019, I had actually just sold two gyms that I had started in college. So I'd had those for about four years. And you know, towards the end of my ownership of those businesses, was dealing with some skincare issues um, or some skin-related problems, specifically like acne, and had kind of experimented with a couple of different brands, a few female-oriented brands, a few brands my dermatologist recommended, and you know, was able to kind of solve most of my, my skin problems, so to speak, but just felt like there wasn't a male brand that packaged those formulations and approaches in a way that spoke to me as a guy. So you know, at a very basic level, and I'm sure you've heard this before with other folks you've interviewed, like just felt a personal frustration with a gap in the market. And once I started to do more research, realized like in addition to my personal frustration, seems like other guys are experiencing that as well. And noticed, you know, from from that research, like, hey, there's probably a business opportunity here. So that's kind of like what what came to be um, Disco as you see it now. Very cool. What were your first steps beyond that? Did you go right into product formulation or did you go deep into research? Yeah. So if I could do it all over again, I would not spend another dollar and I would have just basically set up like a fake brand um, along with a fake PDP or landing page and would have invested, I don't know, 500 bucks into sending traffic there. But at the time, I didn't know anything about ads. So what I did was spent um, probably an equivalent amount of money on like research, 
And look, at the end of the day, like, as you probably know, and most of your audience knows, like, all that matters is, is actual conversion metrics, not like what some Gartner study or whatever tells you. So that's definitely a mistake I made. And to anyone listening, looking to start their own brand, like, by all means, like, you should be testing, testing, testing before you launch anything or go raise money if you can. I mean, obviously, if you can raise a bunch of money without doing any testing or proving product market fit more power to you, but um, it'll make your job more difficult down the line. So that's kind of what I did was do some research initially, then put together a pitch deck, raise some money from friends and family, and then for the, basically nine months from basically February of 2019 until October, November, was building out the brands and formulating the products um, after we raised enough money to kind of hit go on those things. How'd you come up with the brand? Yeah, so Candidly definitely worked with a branding agency called High Tide in Brooklyn. Um, had a lot of fun. Uh, basically coming up with what you now see as disco and the name itself stemmed from like quite a lengthy naming exercise I did with them. Initially there was probably like 20 or 30 names and disco was not the top of the list by any means. And for some reason I just kept coming back around to that for a couple of reasons. One, I really like house music specifically like disco music. So that kind of felt like a personal connection to me. Um, number two, I think a lot of brands are guilty of, you know, using or leveraging names that you can't pronounce or are up for interpretation. And I wanted there to be like no question about how you pronounced our name. Everyone knows how to say the word disco, even, you know, folks who don't speak English for the most part. So that was, that was important to me, uh, as well as the fact that I didn't want it to be too on the nose. Like I wanted it to be unrelated to men's skincare because I think that's what makes it more memorable. And then I think lastly, you know, it's quite easy to pronounce and there was like a healthy domain available too. So for all of those reasons and probably a few more, this is why we ended up at disco. And I think I think in the end, it was a net positive decision just because it is quite a fun brand and it gives us a lot of uh, leeway to play around with marketing campaigns and whatnot, too. I think so. It, it, like, I, I look at the, the brand itself and it's very it's like a minimalist sort of brand in terms of what your agency has created. But Let's Disco as the domain, letsdisco.com, if you're listening right now, is is it, like that's that's kind of an, an anachronism in a way. Right. It just it just makes it's, it's, it makes you smile when you say it in a way like because I don't I haven't heard anyone say in a while like Let's Disco it reminds me of like a Steve Martin, uh, you know, commercial from SNL in the back in the day. But it's fun. Yeah, I'm not going to take credit for saying that like the Let's Disco has something to do with like pushing people to purchase by any means. I thought it was more just like fun, but I do think it's sort of, it gets people thinking, it's interesting, it's memorable, easy to pronounce and spell. So again, like for all those reasons and more, I think that's kind of worked out in our favor. I of course won't take credit for the fact that I could have seen all of those things unfolding three or four years ago, but um, hey, we are where we are. You get You get lucky with some things when you start a brand like this sometimes, I suppose. I love it. And I'm on the site now and it's, it's a continuity program. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a recurring skincare subscription versus a one-off purchase. Is that, uh, describe that decision. Yeah. So, um, again, if I could do things all over again, the lesson I would probably bestow upon my past self would be definitely go narrower with so fewer SKUs basically, and maybe focus more on like kits or systems because with men's skincare in particular, one, you're dealing with a deeply stigmatized category basically like people make fun of it for being feminine or whatever. Number two, either because of what I just said or other reasons, you know, not many men are avid skincare users. So I think solving the problem of men's skincare initially, if I could do it over, I would focus on like two or three products and then use like two or different combinations of those for kits and sell them that way. I didn't do that obviously. And uh, we launched with seven or eight SKUs, um, which has its downsides. Maybe we can talk about that later too. But one of our products ended up being a bestseller hero product for us, which is our iStick. And 
that is kind of what's catapulted us and, and most of our growth and, and sort of leads our user acquisition on the front end. And, you know, about 30% of purchases out for subscriptions. So yeah, it's definitely a healthy part of our business. Um, we don't have any funnels that, you know, only focus on subscription, but because we offer that incentivized discount, you know, that's why I think, you know, a large portion of folks optimize or choose subscriptions over a la carte. Can you describe, you know, I've just, I've done some reading. I've seen a lot of the press. I've seen a bit of the funding that you've, that you've taken. Can you just describe your growth journey from kind of when you started? I believe it was in, in 2020, like over the pandemic. How, how, what's your growth journey been like? Yeah, I'm happy to share high level numbers. And I think you'll, your listeners will get a pretty good perspective on how small we were and where we're at now. So we launched in October of 2019, did a little more than $10,000 the, the remainder of that year not very successful as you can probably imagine the following year. So that would have been 2020 did a few hundred thousand dollars in sales. And that was because we still hadn't really figured out how to acquire customers in an efficient way until sort of like September time. And, you know, that was almost entirely on me. I'm the founder. I just had no idea how to acquire and speak to male customers. One, like I said, it's already a tough category, but two, I just wasn't working with the right folks. We weren't sort of coming up with a website that, was high converting from a UX UI standpoint. We didn't have good ads. We didn't have copy that spoke to the problem and solution correctly. And we weren't sure which product candidly is like the best acquisition hook to get people into the disco ecosystem. So for all those reasons and more, it took us a little while. Um, so yeah, t- 2019, 10,000 to 20,000 bucks in sales, 2020, a few hundred thousand last year. So 2021, a few million. And then this year we're into the eight figures. So we're, we're humming. We're not where we want to be. You know, it's always sort of like, how do we get more and more and more, right? But we've definitely come a long way from the beginning. And um, yeah, it's mostly been driven by just really, really, you know, a core focus on landing pages, copy, creative, like the traditional marketing stuff that, you know, folks on your podcast and y'all on your newsletter talk about on a weekly basis. I, I read something somewhere that you think some people overcomplicate the whole idea of a funnel. And uh, how do you think about funnels and how do you think potentially people overcomplicate them sometimes? I mean, I think at the end of the day, if you have sufficient capital, whether that's through bootstrapping or you know outside funding, it doesn't really matter. You should be optimizing for all the best marketing tools. You, know, you should be on Shopify Plus. You should be using all the best apps. You should be using all of, like the latest and greatest, right? Upsells, cross-sells. Um, social proof reviews, you know, all sort of like the ecosystem of apps. But the reality is like, I think a lot of people are always looking for like, how do I increase AOV 40% with like some, it just doesn't exist, right? Those can kind of stack on each other and then maybe help your AOV or conversion rate 10, 20, even up to 30% if you're lucky. But the reality is like, I don't think enough people focus on the value proposition of the actual product. Because in this day and age, you have to have a good brand and product. So I'm just assuming you have both of those, right? So the value proposition of the product and then how you communicate that to the user through creative, copy, and then the landing page offer, right? So if you can get those four things right, the value proposition, the creative, the copy, and then the landing page and its offer, you should be profitable on first purchase, depending on the category you're in. And I think a lot of people, because it's so difficult to achieve that, They spend more time focusing on distractions, which are like, what's the latest upsell app or cross-sell app or live chat app, whereas they really should be focusing on the fundamentals, which are like the basic parts of a marketing funnel. So we're not perfect by any means, and I'm guilty of sometimes like shying away from the real nitty-gritty work of like coming up with new offers, coming up with bundling offers, et cetera, new new angles, et cetera. But I would encourage people to spend more time in like the cold, hard, like four or five major pieces of a funnel versus like what's the latest app that people on Twitter are talking about. Does that make sense? 
hundred percent fundamentals always. Right. And I think, I think it's easy to, to look at the bells and whistles. And I think as you were describing all those apps, like if you do that in a ham fisted way, then your site's going to come off as something that's out of a box. You know, if you have a spinning wheel, a lot of the times these days, I think that's a sign to a lot of customers that like, okay, this is not a, maybe not a serious brand or not the kind of brand that I want to be associated with potentially. Right. So you just have to be very cognizant, I guess, of how you stack the performance tools so that you don't affect the customer experience or the brand experience potentially in a negative way. Yeah, and, and that's something we're toying around with right now is exit intent pop-ups and things of that nature, right? Where you can look at the top line and say, hey, you know, this improved AOV by, I don't know, we'll just make numbers up, right? Two or $3, and it has an impacted conversion rate. But you also need to put yourself in the shoes of the customer and, and do things like surveys, right? Because we actually found that despite an increase in AOV and, and no decrease in conversion rate, many people were frustrated and annoyed. And you have to kind of weigh, like, is that incremental increase in AOV worth it versus the percentage of your customers that are now, like, a little bit unhappy? And you can't really quantify that, right? So it becomes kind of, like, an important business decision. So, again, these are the kinds of, like, uh, micro decisions you need to be making on, like, a pretty dynamic and weekly basis to kind of build the business in a way that's really, really customer first in the long term. Congrats on that growth, by the way. I didn't, I didn't come in at the time, but like to get to eight figures and you're doing this against a backdrop of maybe some of the most trying times, uh, in, in paid social, you know, over the last five, 10 years kind of thing. How has the sort of iOS 14, five privacy changes, have they slowed you down at all? Almost certainly. That was the single worst thing to ever happen to our business, but also in some ways, perhaps also the best thing. And here's why. So you know, at the time, our blended CAC was, was quite low, and we were first order profitable um, from a margin basis too, not just a revenue basis. So when you, when you're first order profitable on a margin basis, like you can really pump, you know, that incremental cash you make on each purchase back into ads and scale super fast, right? Assuming that your ads don't fatigue and CAC, you know, stays relatively stable. So that was the situation pre iOS for us, and then iOS, you know, rolled out, and our CAC went up uh, between 400 and 500 percent in the course of like a few weeks. So one, that's of course a very bad thing, objectively, right? The good news is we raised the seed round about three or four weeks before that. So we had some cash in the bank and that allowed us, this is like when I think it really makes sense to raise money is when you're growing quickly and you need fuel to kind of grow faster and hire, you know, smarter and more people. That's where I think, you know, venture funding or taking outside funding can be really helpful. In this instance, if we hadn't have done that, I can't say for sure that we would still be around today. Um, so we were got a bit lucky with that. And back to the iOS question specifically. Um, so yeah, our CAC basically blew up. Um, we pulled back spend almost to zero. And from sort of like April of last year until like November, I mean, we were spending like a fourth of what we wore in March of that year. So it wasn't until like November, December that we really like put our foot on the gas because we basically were faced with the decision of like, cool, like we can build a nice like one to $2 million a year business that might have some EBITDA. But the reality is like, we want to go much bigger than that. And we know that we know for a fact, the market opportunity is bigger too. So let's be aggressive. And we were really aggressive in November and December and the first couple months of this year. And our CAC has come back down almost to, to pre iOS levels. We're not quite there yet, but it's come back down quite significantly. What have been the key factors in getting back to that CAC? Like how have you pivoted to, to get back to that CAC in the iOS 14 environment? Yeah, so a couple things. Um, one, we hired the absolute smartest uh, media buyers that you can find. So some will argue that media buying is a bit of a commoditized skill. I would I would agree to some extent with that. But the reality is like you need someone almost full-time, if they're not full-time or close to it, managing your, your paid media on a daily basis, almost an hourly basis, you know, sometimes. So that was number one. Number two, 
we invested super heavily into creative, like we four or five X our output of creatives. We're testing 25 to 30 creatives a week now, video creatives, and then some statics on top of that. So just volume of creative was super important. Number three was just really focusing on what works. So, you know, at the time we were constantly trying to find other SKUs and other bundles and things to sort of use as like our acquisition hook or entry point to the brand. And we never once found one. So we were spending, you know, 10, 15, 20% of our budget on testing, which is roughly what you're supposed to do depending on the brand. And we just made the decision to go all in on testing what we know worked at the time. And the testing budget would then be used for different angles within that SKU that works, if that makes sense. So that was number two or number three. The last point was really just around data. So obviously like in-platform attribution is very questionable. Um, it obviously depends on the business again. So there's a bit of a spectrum here, but for us, we decided to go with a platform that we basically use as our source of truth for making all decisions. So we don't even really look at in-platform data. Like, of course we see it, but at the end of the day, we make tweaks and optimizations based on what Northbeam tells us. So, you know, all of those decisions and maybe a few other fringe ones were kind of what led us to the promised land. I think more recently too, I can't say for sure, but my speculation is that a lot of advertisers pulled off Facebook in droves and therefore like CPMs have gone down a tad. I also think, um, you know, Facebook will start to find ways to kind of drive more efficiency because their entire business depends on brands like Disco spending money. So um, yeah, I'm actually quite bullish on the future. I do think gone are the days where you can basically like launch a decent brand with a cool product and have moderate competence in growth marketing and you'll just win. I think now like you have to have a great brand to whatever category you're in. You have to have fantastic products. You got to have a good CX team at least. And then what separates the good from the great is just really competent growth marketers who understand channel mix, who understand uh, attribution, and then also understand like the full funnel, like I mentioned earlier, the value proposition, the creative, the copy, the offer, and then on-site conversion rate. Because yeah, like I said, you just it's just not easy anymore. It's super hard. And um, only the, only the best will survive now, I think. I'm always interested in what makes a good brand. And I'm looking at your brand and you can tell it's a good brand. It's simplified, it's minimal, but like what, what in your mind actually qualifies something as having a good brand? Uh, I think at least from the brands that I buy from, I think they one always come from a place of authority. So whatever it is they may be selling, like for example, I have a, a water here, right? The brand in front of me, like they're, they're one of the, the more trusted sources of water, right? So I think However, they build that source of trust. Like I've bought into that, so I think whether they it's actually legitimate or not doesn't really matter. If they've actually built that, you know, sort of reputation of trust, that's like first and foremost. In some cases, like having a wild brand, like Liquid Death would be a great example, can kind of help you grow and um, acquire customers. So I think just having an interesting visual identity is kind of table stakes now, regardless of the category you're in. So I think that's absolutely paramount. And that can also create a layer of trust as well through the brand too. So having a beautifully visually designed, whether it's like silly or aggressive, like liquid death or more scientific or kind of in the middle, like disco, that's super important too. And then I think um, the last piece is really just how you communicate with customers as I'm sure you probably guessed, right? Like how do you present in the world end to end? So from the website to the social, to the shipbox experience, if we're talking e-commerce to the packaging, if that's consistently fairly great, then I think, you know, that can be really helpful with lifetime value, assuming your product's good too. So yeah, kind of a generic answer, but it's, it's a really tough question to answer. I think you kind of, it's kind of one of those things where you know one when you see one, but it's a little often difficult to describe exactly what makes it so great. D2C marketers, let's get real. How many hours have you wasted searching for brand influencers only to come up empty handed? 
It's time to stop spending time searching, scrolling, and haggling with influencers and start using creator marketing with hashtag paid. With hashtag paid, you can find your perfect creator match for your brand in less than 10 minutes every time. Getting started is easy. Just select your audience and campaign objectives, pick from a short list of creators, and hit run. It's just that easy. There's a reason why Hashtag Paid is the number one rated influencer marketing platform for D2C brands. And as a D2C podcast listener, you can even get up to $500 in account credit until September 30th for your first campaign. Just go to go.hashtagpaid.com slash DTCpod to get started. Okay, let's talk platforms a little bit here. So we've talked a little bit about paid social. We talked about Facebook meta ads. Where are you seeing the biggest gains? What platform are you seeing the biggest wins on, let's say right now? Yeah, so in the beginning of the year, we launched on uh, TikTok, um, you know, paid ads. And we immediately saw fairly significant scale there. So, I mean, I don't think this is a secret if there's any competitors listening. Like a lot of brands I know in different categories have been able to kind of get to like the 10 to 12K a day mark, some up to 15 but once you hit that mark, like it kind of goes dry pretty quickly and you need to constantly be rebuilding the account. That's about what we hit on TikTok. Um, and that was about 50% of our media budget when we were at our peak. Right now, we're actually seeing more efficiency on Facebook. So obviously allocating a bunch of spend there. We're also investing super heavily in Facebook-oriented creatives. So that could also be part of the reason why. And then maybe about 10 to 15% of our spend is Google, both branded and, and non-brand. And then we kind of have a testing budget for some other I wouldn't say fringe, but um, less reliable and scalable uh, platforms. We're also doing direct mail right now uh, from a retargeting and win back perspective, which seems to have you know high efficiencies. So if you're not doing that, I highly recommend it. Um, Go into that a little bit for me, because direct mail is something I think people are really interested in. What's old is new again in, in a lot of ways. So from a win back and a retargeting perspective, describe how that works. Basically, customers that um, have abandoned cart or um, have churned from subscriptions or have, you know, from a win back perspective, have not bought in X amount of days. And you can kind of do 90 days, you can do 150, it's up to you, right? We hit them with uh, a mailer, which basically is just an offer to come back. And we've seen very positive ROI with that. And I think that's because one, the, the mailers are designed in a funny and engaging way. The offer is usually pretty enticing. It's the best offer. We don't really run offers like on paid media. So these are really the only offers, you know, to win people back who are essentially already lost. Right. And so I think the combination of those things makes it quite enticing for the user. So, yeah, I mean, look, it's not going to work for every brand, but when you can track the coupon ROI and it's a few hundred percent, it's like, that's kind of a no brainer, right? Is it a QR code that they use or is it a website they have to go to? So we use, uh, look, I'm happy to kind of divulge who we use. It's This isn't a secret. Uh, Postpilot is who we use. Yeah, we, we offer the code up on the card itself as well as um, as well as a QR code too. You mentioned Northbeam earlier and, and this idea of source of truth. It's, I, I think about it all the time because we've just made, you know, big changes to our user acquisition program just on the newsletter by totally throwing out all platform data and just going with, right now, because we're lead generation, we don't actually need Northbeam or any of these other platforms. We just use our UTM codes essentially. But like the decisions that you could make if you're using platform data can be so far off what it what things are actually happening that it's just like you're really, really blind unless you're using some form of third-party validation at this point. And our, and ever since then we started building our audiences based on proper data, our audiences work better. And it's sort of this, it just continues to get better now that we're actually using a real source of truth. Yeah. In our case, um, we use Northbeam to make like day-to-day decisions. So if we see some ad is performing really well in Northbeam, generally we'll scale it, even if it's not showing that it's performing well, say in TikTok, for example. 
Now, if we see like our benchmark, let's just say our benchmark is a 1x just to keep the conversation simple. If we see that something's like 2xing or 3xing in TikTok and North Beam's showing it 0.5, we might question that, right? Like we have we have an elasticity, like standard deviation spectrum. I mean, that's kind of like a complicated word for it, but like you get with the point, right? Like if there's a huge discrepancy, we do second guess um, and just look into it a little bit more. Um, but generally speaking, I'd say 90 plus percent of our decisions are informed by, in our case, North Beam. And I would recommend folks listening to regardless of your ad budgets, like whether it's North Beam or otherwise, like you should be making decisions from one source of truth. And of course, questioning things that are wildly deviated from one another. But for the most part, it's really important to have like that singular source of truth. Otherwise, like you're kind of just flying blind. Interesting. We asked you about the biggest levers that you've been able to pull with your products and you mentioned raising prices. I feel like this is an interesting topic on a lot of people's minds. Every other prices are, you know, your, my bread, my meat, my cheese, all of that is getting more expensive. How did you decide to raise your prices and how did you decide what to raise them to? Yeah. So, I mean, luckily this is something you can test. If you, if you have say five SKUs and they're $10 each, you can pretty easily raise the price to $12 and see the direct impact. Like, you know, launch that on Wednesday at a 12 PM. And if your conversion rate is normally 3% and your conversion rate comes down to 1%, you know, with statistical significance a week later, depending on the traffic volume you have, like this is not that complicated of a CRO test, right? You know, almost certainly that that price is probably too high. So in our case, what we did was we basically isolated that test. We cut all CRO and conversion rate optimization sort of tests for a week or two and just raised many of our SKUs prices, two to $4 each, and didn't see any impact negatively in conversion. So we knew, okay, let's do it again. And so we did it again from there. And then we started to kind of experience some, some downturns or signals in conversion rate going down. So that's when we got a bit more granular and started A-B testing things a bit more um, specifically. But yeah, generally speaking, like I wouldn't raise a $10 product to $20, but I mean, you could definitely test, you know, sort of creeping those up over time, which has an immediate impact on gross margin. And you can basically weigh the impact on gross margin versus conversion rate and CAC. And if it doesn't impact your CAC so much, but your gross margin increases more, that in my opinion is a worthwhile change. And of course, like there are implications from an LTV perspective too. Like people might not, care about it on the first purchase, but they might decide, hey, you know, over time, this is too expensive for me. So you need to kind of make sure you account for that, um, depending on the business you are. But yeah, generally speaking, if you're honest with customers and just tell them like, look, times are tough. Here's why we're raising the prices. This is where the money is going. If you have any questions, reach out to us. Generally speaking, if you're super transparent and the answer is not actually a lie, customers will understand as long as they're like doubling or tripling the price. So that's been my experience in business in general. And most of the advice I've gotten from people who built way bigger companies selling you know, products like ours and services, courses, et cetera, have said the same generally too. When did you raise your prices? A couple months ago. Yeah, maybe like 90 days ago. Immediate impact on gross margin. We also cut the free shipping uh, for subscriptions and started charging. We added that to our shipping threshold. So it used to be $40 and up plus subscriptions shipped free. Now it's $50 and up and all orders under that, you know, pay for shipping. So we didn't see any negative impact there in conversion. Again, like these are things you have to test in a sandbox. I'm sure if we added free shipping or lowered it, you know, to $40 and then added it for uh, subscriptions, which is something we might actually test soon again, maybe we'd see an increase in conversion. But again, like these are the things you should be constantly tinkering with because essentially a business like Disco or other D2C businesses, if you have a good brand and you have good products, it's basically a, a marketing and math equation after that. And if you're good at math, and you're good at marketing, you can probably build a scalable, profitable business, generally speaking. Even in these tough times? 
Well, it depends. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're doing okay right now, then I would say yes. If you haven't been able to figure out how to continue to acquire customers and more importantly, arguably keep your customers, then yeah, you're probably in trouble. I definitely, you know, at the end of last year, as I alluded to earlier in the podcast, like candidly had thoughts, like, I don't know if we're going to be able to figure this out. I'm sure lots of entrepreneurs across all different categories, especially D2C right now, probably have similar thoughts, right? But, you know, if your business is humming and, you know, you're close to first order profitability, if that makes sense for you, or you can map out exactly what your payback period is confidently, like keep doing what you're doing. I love it. You mentioned how I how the iStick has become a bit of a hero product and it's sort of the, the entry product uh, to the disco ecosystem. What's been your, your most successful strategy for breaking people out of just the iStick and into your other wider range of products? Regardless of what industry you're in, but especially for the one that we're in, which is men's skincare, it's super important to understand like the problem set that your target customer experiences because we were guilty of, and we're still fixing this right now, by the way, just assuming that if you launch with a great brand and great product, you'll you'll acquire customers, right? And maybe like five years ago, that assumption would be correct just because Facebook was so cheap, right? But now you have to have a great brand, great product, as I've hounded on throughout this podcast. You have to be really good at acquiring customers. And then you have to have extremely, extremely thoughtful and um, value proposition oriented lifecycle marketing. So email, SMS, social, um, all those sorts of you know, components that, you know, exist in the, in the post-purchase world. And so we were guilty of kind of just putting products in front of people the same, the same way we weren't able to win in the beginning of our business where we just kind of like, here's a cleanser, you should buy it. Right. And assume that, you know, Eric knows that he needs a cleanser. The reality is like a new education process starts after the purchase. And it starts with things like, Hey, you bought an eye stick. Well, here's a face mask that's complementary to the eye stick. Here's why you should buy it. Here's why this product isn't feminine. You know, here are the benefits from a skin perspective, and here's how long you need to use it. So we started just drilling into like really pro- like hardcore problem and solution selling. And then we added some offers too to try to improve LTV as well, which we don't typically do on the front end. So that's kind of been our focus the last like 60 days. And, um, you know, the next 60 days, we're kind of sprinting on retention, um, specifically like churn and, you know, credit card billing, things like that. So yeah, we've been, you know, primarily focused on front end acquisition. And now that we're kind of upscale, it's really important for us to focus on retention and uh, and churn now. So that's kind of where we shifted our focus. I love it. You mentioned uh, your just incredible content production. This is we everyone that we talk to on the podcast is feeding the machine with you know creative really is the new lever. You know a lot of the the data lossage that we've uh, all experienced. I think people are using creative to kind of overcome that a little bit. What does the content? Pro- I know you have a pretty lean team. What does content production look like at Disco? Is that something done in house? Do you have multiple partners doing it out house? How does that work? Yeah, so we're actually only a team of five on the business team, and then we have uh, five on the CX team. So I guess in total, a team of 10. So it's a really lean team, especially with half of that going to CX. We have an agency partner that helps with creative. Viewers probably know who they are. You can kind of figure out based on looking at our ads. But um, yeah, we, we, we lean on a partner pretty heavily for Facebook creative. We have a full-time, um, I guess that would make it six. We have a full-time creator on TikTok um, who makes organic content for us. He also makes a number of ads for us every week. And any, any sort of organic posts that do well, so to speak, from like a reach and engagement standpoint, we typically boost those as Spark ads. So we have an agency. We have, you know, sort of a full-time TikTok creator who's also making ads and they're also boosting his posts. And then we also have an ambassador program of TikTokers of around 100 folks that, 
typically post about once a month. And then any of them that do well, we'll, we'll grab the Spark ID codes for those and Spark add them on, on TikTok. And then we'll also ask them to make more creative for us too. So that's kind of the engine. One of our internal team members is also a graphic designer. So she makes a lot of our like static ads, but static ads haven't worked well for us. I know they work well for some, for some brands, but for whatever reason, they just never really caught on for us. Interesting. You got to get that personality across in those UGC type videos. It seems like it, right? And I think like the blessing and the curse of men's skincare is that you so quickly have to show the problem that men are experiencing from a relationary standpoint. So, right, like this is an angle that works. I've got a date on Thursday and I've got really dark circles from going out the night before. Here's, here's like the product that fixes that. And it's kind of a shame that we have to be so like blatantly um, masculine in our, in our angles, but that is what's, that's what's worked for us. Right. So we're going to lean into what's working. I think eventually we want to get, we want to change the culture around skincare to the point where like, it's assumed that men know they need to use skincare products and they're just choosing disco over others because our brand is better. Our marketing is better. Our packaging is better. And of course our products are better, but we're not at that point in society yet. Right. So the onus is kind of on us and the other skincare brands in our, in our competitive landscape too, to keep educating men on the importance of skincare to where it will of course become easier. Right. So on the female side of the bathroom, you've got, I don't know. I mean, probably thousands of skincare brands, like maybe tens of thousands. I don't, I don't know for sure, but definitely thousands, right? And there are probably, there's probably a few hundred brands that are doing eight figures, I would guess. On the men's skincare side, there's five, maybe 10, right? So I think it's really on us to kind of change the culture longer term and, and move away from these like hardcore performance marketing driven angles that of course will work and we're going to continue leaning in on as they work, but eventually to the point where it's more about like, lifestyle and you know just you know a full routine and whatnot if that makes sense totally i i you know i'm in my 40s i just started a, a just from a, a previous skincare brand on the podcast started a skincare regimen and it's uh i'm now problem aware um so i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to get some disco and kind of get it into the mix to see uh see how it goes well we're launching canada in the next week or two. Oh, awesome. We'll, of course, ship you a box irrespective of that launch but um yeah we're gonna launch sales in canada in about a week or two that's good to know. Nice. Um, okay. Well, if we were to offer you a 50K grant uh, to scale Disco, where would you use that budget? Yeah, I think I, um, I, think I thought about this before, before the uh, podcast today because I listen to the podcast pretty regularly. But um, there's probably three areas I would look at. One, I mean, most people say this, so I'll, I'll, that's why I'll include two more. So it's not a cop-out answer. But TikTok, of course, like just testing TikTok creators, angles, um, spark ads, et cetera. But I would probably swing a little bit bigger. We've kind of tried like the micro-influencer stuff and it doesn't hit as well. So I'd probably take 20 grand and test like two 8K influencers-ish and then one 4K influencer. Um, yeah, that math adds up. And then um, I'd probably take uh, an additional 20K of the uh, of the 50 and do a localized YouTube um, like brand lift study in say like New York, LA, Austin to try to understand how that impacts top of funnel and, and sort of like um, mid funnel and bottom funnel CPA. Maybe that's not enough spend, but at least it'll give us a signal there. And then the last 10K, I would put towards hiring an affiliate marketing consultant to, to really drive into affiliates and scale that part of our business because, candidly, we've overlooked that to date. So that's kind of how I'd parse out the spend, if that makes sense. That does perfectly. Do you know Lauren Kleinman uh, over there in LA? Yeah, we, we use them. Yeah, so we use, we oh, use cool. Dream Day. Um, that's more for commerce PR, like uh, press-oriented web PR. We also love the benefits of all the backlinks you get from those hits too. When I say PR, I was more referring to like influencers, um, affiliate networks, kind of like the more hardcore affiliate marketing kind of stuff, if that makes sense. But we love Lauren and her team too. 
Yeah, I'm always impressed with with. I've also just just searching for your brand. You've done a fair amount in earned media. It looks like, and that maybe through Lauren and through through your own efforts as well. How has earned media affected the brand? Yeah, I would say if you can afford it in the early days, and you know that your brand will actually get PR if you invest in it, it's well worth it. Just because of the social credibility you get. I think if you're not profitable and you're dumping eight, ten, fifteen, twenty k a month into PR. Mm, it gets a little tougher unless you have sufficient cash in the bank to kind of afford paying that until you flip the script on the business economics. But in the beginning, it is quite useful because you know having GQ, Ask Men, Forbes, Rolling Stone, etc., talk about your brand and give you grooming awards and feature myself and the story and whatnot. Like that's really credibility lending, which I do think in some cases can be really helpful for paid ads. For us, it's more of a credibility play, and we also treat like the commerce PR, like the the listicles we get listed in, more as like a backlinking strategy as well. That's cool. I, have you? I haven't actually been on your TikTok channel yet. I have you inserted yourself at all? I know you're a bit of a business influence. I, I see you on on LinkedIn in the community of other entrepreneurs. Have you tried inserting yourself all at all in the in the TikTok content in terms of you know founder stories and things like that? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm I'm just now becoming comfortable like writing in front of other people, which you're probably alluding to with your comment about LinkedIn. Um, I started sort of publishing some thoughts on there like two or three weeks ago. I'm going to start doing the same on Twitter two or three weeks from now. So it's June 30th, in case your listeners don't know. Um, so probably around mid-July. Uh, I think it'll take some warming up, but of course I understand the benefits of the founder getting on TikTok. Like I've seen it myself. I'm just warming up to it. And I think, um, yeah, expect to see me towards the end of July or early August on TikTok because my team has been hounding me about it and I know I have to do it. It's just like, it's just a no brainer. I think it accomplishes what you want too, in terms of like the, the sea change you're looking for in the space, like putting yourself out there potentially as a man concerned with skincare in a really authentic way, it probably will, you know, advance the conversation you're looking to advance. Yeah. I'll actually give a shout out to one of, um, sort of a competitor, sort of not, um, they're more focused on makeup, but Strix founder of Strix does a good job of, uh, you know, presenting himself on TikTok, And, uh, he's been doing a good job of kind of like pounding the pavement, so to speak about changing the narrative around men and, and sort of like the relationship with makeup. So maybe I'll take a page out of his playbook and, and do the same for skincare. But, um, yeah, you're totally right, Eric, of course, like assuming I put, put out actually good content, like I think it could really help the business and change the conversation. Well, keep honing your writing. I'm, I'm enjoying it so far. If people want to get in touch with you right now, it sounds like LinkedIn is the best place to go. Uh, any other suggestions for D2C listeners wanting to, to connect? Yeah. Yeah. You can just shoot me a, a note uh, on LinkedIn. I'm pretty responsive there. Um, I check that every day. So that's probably the best place to do it. And um, yeah, looking forward to hearing from hopefully some of your listeners. And if you're out there looking to, like, if you don't have a skincare regimen at this point and you're a man, it's time to start thinking about it. You can go to letsdisco.com and, uh, and check out some of the great products they have there. I want to thank you for coming on the DTC podcast today, Benjamin. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, I really enjoyed it, Eric. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at directtoconsumeralloneword.co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. We'll see you next time.